we're going to approach Christmas along the same path, along the same route that Matthew, the gospel, chose to get to Christmas. And some, some people begin Christmas at, at the tree farm. Some people, God bless them, begin Christmas at the mall or, dare I say, Watson Boulevard, which is nuts. There are families that want to be here right now, but they're stuck in traffic from Watson Boulevard last night. I mean, you know, so let's just pray for them right now. I was there a couple of days ago, and uh, it was like two hours I spent on House and Lake Road um, just getting home. Uh, Matthew says that that might be fine, but for him, Christmas, Christmas, Christmas is a place we arrive to after we travel this path of the names and, 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 and the persons who make up the ancestry of Jesus. <clears throat> and so there's these, there's these three sets of 14 generations. And, uh, and we read uh, one verse of it last week, but I want to read a, a, a little bit more. I want to actually start in Matthew's gospel. And now that I've timed myself in the 830 service, I'm going to fly as fast as I can. A, a record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, <clears throat> whose mother was Tamar. Now, now you, you heard me say last week, women aren't supposed to be in the list. I mean, like, like, women don't make the list, right? And so this is kind of not, she's not supposed to be here, okay? She's not supposed to be here. But... But like the rest of the scriptures, things don't happen by accident. Matthew's making a choice to include her here. And, uh, and, and, and I also made a choice to not include her for an entire sermon because, uh, and, and the staff can attest to this, uh, we, we talked about it a few weeks ago. Uh, if you know the story of Tamar, I decided I just couldn't preach it. Not a few weeks before Christmas. Like, y'all did not come here to hear the story of Tamar a few weeks before Christmas. Y'all would say, what's in his ever-loving mind? That's not a Christmas story. Except Matthew says it's a Christmas story. And I'm not going to say any more other than Tamar made some bold choices. Okay, That's the story. The story from Genesis is that Tamar made some bold choices. She, tough circumstances, but she made some bold choices. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Aram. Aram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. I think this might be maybe one of the one or two only times that Rahab is mentioned without her label. You with me? You were here last week. You thought that I took great delight in saying Rahab the... But I'm not saying it again because um, I said it enough last week. You with me? You know, in case you don't remember what it was, um, look it up. But every time the Bible talks about Rahab, she's got this label attached. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. And they don't actually list her name, but we all know her name. Who was, who was the mother of, uh, of Solomon? Bathsheba, that's right, yeah. And, and Bathsheba makes the list because she took a bath. <clears throat> that makes sense if you know that story. Uh, she's up on the roof bathing, and David sees her and says, I would like... Okay, and uh, and that's how that happens, and that's how that happens, and and 
David commits uh, 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 atrocious crimes all in that story. But what we get from the beginning of Matthew's gospel is that Matthew is making particular choices. He doesn't just violate the women don't belong in the list once. He violates it four times in five verses. And he does it because every single woman in this list plays a significant role in how we get to the birth of the Savior of the universe. Because for Matthew, every single woman has value. Because every single woman has value. Because every single woman has value. We're going to hear the story of Ruth today. But, but, but before I get to the background of the birth of the Savior, we have to get some background on the, on the story of Ruth. And uh, Ruth, now this is fascinating because you're thinking that I probably crossed some lines last week just reading the Bible saying that Rahab was a... But what's fascinating is in the Old Testament, the label attached to Ruth is worse than that of being a that Rahab was. We're told that Ruth is a Gentile Moabite. A Gentile Moabite. And, and apparently a Gentile Moabite is really bad according to Deuteronomy 23.3. You got that up there? Ammonites and Moabites can't belong to the Lord's assembly Not even the tenth generation of such people can belong to the Lord's assembly as a rule. Okay, so here's the thing. If you have this as your ethnicity, you are cut off from being in the people of God. Not just your generation, not just your kids, but ten generations is not enough to remove, remove the impurity of this ethnicity enough for you to be included in the people of God. And what it implies is, if they're not supposed to be included in the people of God, you shouldn't, hear me, do anything that would include them. Okay? You shouldn't do anything that would include them, is what it tells us. And it explains in the very next verse, and I probably should have had it up there, is that that's because when, they were, when the people of God were leaving Egypt, the Moabites did not provide them food when they were starving. And they did something else and, um, and hired a guy to put a curse on them. And so that's why it says, for ten generations, Moabites off limits. This is the story of Ruth that Matthew tells us must be told if we're to understand the story of Jesus. I'd like to read large sections of the, of the book of Ruth beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. And if you want to read along with me or follow along on the screens, I believe th- this is powerful. It says, during the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man with his wife and two sons went from Bethlehem of Judah to dwell in the territory of Moab. It's not lost on any of us that Bethlehem makes its appearance here in what is a Christmas story. The name of that man was Elimelech. The father of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. Excuse me, in Judah. They entered the territory of Moab and settled there. But Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. 
Then, she was, then only she was left, along with her two sons. They took wives for themselves, Moabite women. The name of the first was Orpah. You, you, you know, you know that the television personality, her birth certificate says Orpah, but the people that raised her in, the people around her in Mississippi and Milwaukee couldn't pronounce Orpah, so they twisted the two words, and we all know her as, yeah. The two daughters-in-law, Orpah, and the name of the second was Ruth, and they lived there for about 10 years. But both of the sons, Malon and Chilion, also died. Only the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. And I'll interrupt here to say this is a huge deal because at the time, the economy operated with, I'm going I'm to exaggerate, but I'm not, to say, this is, this is entirely accurate. There was one single industry, the whole economy, one single industry. I mean, for the, for the young people that are wondering, what am I going to do with my life back then? I'm going to tell you what you're going to do with your life. The one single place of employment was that you work for the family business, which was almost universally agrarian, right? And, and it was operating farms. And, and, you op- and, 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 if you, and if you were a, a male, you worked for the grandfather or the father, and one day you might become, maybe, become the grandfather or the father, and you were the, you were the operator of the business. If you were a female, you worked for that until you were married, and once you were married, you worked for that family business, Period. But what happens if the family business dies and you're a woman that can't go back? You're you're without a job, and without a job, you're without food and lodging and security. Then she arose along with her daughters-in-law from the field of Moab because while in the territory of Moab, she had heard that the Lord had paid attention to his people providing, by providing food for them. I think the Bible is actually saying, if they had never left in the first place and trusted God, who knows? She left the place where she had been, and her two daughters-in-law went with her. They went along the road to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, turn back, each of you, to the household of your mother. May the Lord deal faithfully with you, just as you have done with the dead and with me, that she's complimenting them. But she's saying, I I, I don't have anything for you. May the Lord provide for you so that you may find security, each woman in the household of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. But they replied to her, no, instead we will return with you to to your people. Naomi replied, turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Will there be again sons in my womb? that they would be husbands to you? We remember that we've talked about before the, the Leverite tradition that said that if a woman had married into a family and her husband died, that she would then be passed on to be cared for to the next in line male in, 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 the, in the legacy, the, the next one. But she's saying, I had two sons, they're both dead. And then she gets pretty clear about the prospects of another Turn back, my daughters, go. I am too old for a husband. If I were to say that I have hope, even if I had a husband tonight, and even more, if I were to bear sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you refrain from having a husband? No, my daughters. This is more bitter for, you, for me than for you, since the Lord's will has come out against me. 
early indicators that she's having a pity party. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, because they knew she was right. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth stayed with her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her gods. Turn back after your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, some of you might have had this read at your wedding. Don't urge me to abandon you, to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me and more so, even if death separates me from you. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. So both of them went along until they arrived at Bethlehem. When they arrived at Bethlehem, the whole town was excited on account of them, and the women of the town asked, Can this be Naomi? And she replied to them, Don't call me by my name, Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has returned me empty. Why would you call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has deemed me guilty? Thus Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, returned with her from the territory of Moab. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now what it says is that that on their first day back, Naomi the mother-in-law tells Ruth the daughter-in-law, hey, we we, we could use a little bit of help. And so Ruth takes it on herself. She goes out to, 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 to to the field that's owned by the family of her now deceased father-in-law, Elimelech, and, uh, and she goes to work. But she doesn't go to work like on the payroll. That's what's clear. She doesn't go to work on the payroll. She goes to work behind the workers, the men and the women, and she's just gleaning the little bits that are left over after the harvesting has happened. But she finds favor with the owner, Boaz, who happens to be a relative. And in fact, he says to her, I've heard your reputation for how loyal and how loving you are to your mother-in-law. He says, well done, keep it up. That's what he says, Ruth chapter 2. And this happens for a day, and then it says that when she comes back that night, this is the exchange between the two women. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. She threshed what she had gleaned. It was about an ephath of barley, which is translated to be like 20 quarts. This is a lot. She picked it up and went to town. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought what she had left over after eating her fill and gave it to her. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? May the one who noticed you be blessed because clearly this is more than you could have gotten on your own without help. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi replied to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord who hasn't abandoned his faithfulness with the living or with the dead. Naomi said to her, this man, the, the, the man is one of our close relatives. He's one of our redeemers. Ruth the Moabite replied, furthermore, he said to me, stay with my workers until they finished all of my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women so that men don't assault you in another field. Just just so we're clear, the Bible is clear that, that these two women are in a bad way. 
it, it, they're, they're having to get help to protect themselves, and so far it's worked out. Thus she stayed with Boaz's young women, gleaning until the completion of the barley and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. I, I want you, all, you, you guys to know, I need a lot of help to read the Bible and make sense of it. I don't know, I don't know about y'all. Maybe y'all are do better with it than I do. I need a lot of help. And, and one of the ways I got help this week was with that last sentence. It says, it says something significant about between the barley and the wheat harvest. And y'all all know, because you guys are better off than I am, y'all all know that, that the barley and the wheat harvest aren't the same thing. But I needed to read that. And so the commentary I read said the barley and the wheat harvest aren't the same thing. They're different harvests. That they're actually separated by two months, which is, which is the Bible writer's way of saying that Ruth didn't rush things. She followed the path that she was on. She followed the plan that even Boaz earlier had complimented her. Keep being faithful. Keep being faithful. Do your thing. Take care of your mother-in-law. For two months, it says. And the other thing I need to point out is this, this word, which, which probably catches most of us uh, off guard. What does it mean that this certain man was one of their redeemers? There was a tradition, the Hebrew word for it was goel. There was this goel tradition that said that if, if the Leverite tradition couldn't be followed and, 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 and you couldn't uh, be married off to the next brother in line, that there is another mechanism for picking up these women who were without. And it was if there are relatives in a hierarchy based on their relationship and their, 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 their bloodline, they could redeem by purchasing the land of the deceased. They would also get the widows that come with them. And she says, he's one of our redeemers, but it does say that he's not the redeemer. He's not the first in line, but he's in line. And so Naomi, the wily mother-in-law, has a plan. Chapter 3, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I seek security for you so that things might go well for you? Parentheses, and for me. Now isn't Boaz, whose young woman, women you were with, our relative? Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. You should bathe, put on some perfume, wear nice clothes, and then go down to the threshing floor. Don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he is lying, then go. Uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Ruth replied to her, I'll do everything you are telling me. And she did, except for one part. What, what it tells us in, in, in the rest of this chapter is that she followed the directions perfectly. And when he had when he had, had his fill and, uh, and, 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 and had a little bit... Um, to drink, and he went to sleep. And, and imagine this, this is not him sleeping at his home, this is sleeping him like, like, like in a corner of the factory, right? You know, they're at work, and, he, and they got some cots lined up over here, and he goes to sleep, and she slides in next to him, and imagine to his surprise, this is the Bible story, I'm telling you in a faster version, um, he, he, to his surprise, he wakes up and says, whoa, <laughs> right? Because I went to sleep at the end of a long day in a cot by myself, and now there's a woman laying on the cot with me. And she follows everything to the letter, except for the part where Naomi says, and the man will tell you what to do. Uh, 
when you read the story, Ruth tells him, right, you know, this is what you need to do, and he does. And what he says to her is, and, 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 and I know that you guys are following, there's a lot of innuendo here. There's no indication that anything else happened. She says, just, just, just take your blanket and cover me up too. That's what, that's what it says. He says, tomorrow I will go and I will find out from the number one in line redeemer if he wants to redeem the property and you. And so Ruth chapter four begins with, with Boaz, uh, Boaz going to the city center and, and all the elders are there and he finds the number one redeemer who never gets named in the story and he says to him, says, uh, I, I wanna know, do you want to buy the property and do you want to uh, get the, the woman that comes with it. In fact, he doesn't actually say it in that order. He says, do you want to buy the property? And the man says, I do want to buy the property. And then he says, oh, by the way, with the property comes a woman, and the, and the, the first in line redeemer says, whoa, that's more than I can handle. I don't, I don't, need, another, I don't need another mouth to feed is the implication. And, and it really what he says is, I don't need to divide my inheritance anymore. It might ruin me. You can have the property and the woman that comes with it. And Boaz says, okay. I'll take that on myself. Yes! Because this is what happens. This this is what happens to end the story, and I would argue, to make history. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He was intimate with her. The Lord let her become pregnant. And she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, remember, that's the the mother-in-law, May the Lord be blessed who today hasn't left you without a redeemer. May his name be proclaimed in Israel. He will restore your life and sustain you in your old age. Your daughter-in-law who loves you has given birth to him. She's better for you than seven sons. That's phenomenal, right? Naomi took the child and held him to her breast, and she became his guardian. The neighborhood women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They called his name Obed, he became Jesse's father and David's grandfather. Now, one of the commentaries I was reading had three paragraphs that said perfectly what I want to say now. And if you'll allow me, I'm just going to read them. They're better than what what I would come up with. Written by uh, Kathleen Robertson Farmer. She writes, Within the context of the whole scriptures, all of the canon, the book of Ruth can be considered a parable of the nature of God's love. The parable says that Ruth persisted in offering Naomi love and support even in the face of Naomi's rejection, just as God persists in loving us even in the face of our rejection. But the specific stories associated with the line of the Messiah read more like a confession of sin than a catalog of virtues. Think about Tamar, which you guys, I'm just telling you, trust me, Tamar, and then Rahab, and the list goes on. And and forget about just the women when it comes to the sins. He says the stories about the ancestors of Ruth and Boaz make it clear that the Messianic king comes from a well-established line of tricksters who have mixed and not always admirable motives for what they do. The men are totally on that list. 
Whatever determined David's eligibility to father the messianic line of kings, we can be sure that it was neither the ethnic nor the moral purity of his ancestral line. The collective point these stories make is not that the mothers and fathers of the Messiah were exceptionally worthy people, but that God can use even the least likely agents to bring about redemption. When the Gospel of Matthew adds Rahab to the list of David's ancestors and Jesus to the list of those whose ancestry is nothing to brag about, the theological point remains the same. It is God's grace and not our own merit that brings forth the Redeemer of the world. See, see, the reward that we receive from God is not because of our faithfulness. The love we receive from God is not something that we have done anything to deserve. And Matthew says, we can't get to Christmas without that. But, but, but here's the thing. There are every one of us, every one of us in the room this morning or, or yesterday or last week or tomorrow or next week, Every one of us has been where Naomi has been and said, woe is me. God's quit on me. I am the worst of the worst of the worst. Every one of us has, has thought to ourselves and not dared say it out loud, if the people around me knew of all the labels that are attached to me, they'd cut me off too. Every one of us has asked the question, what have I ever done to deserve love? I mean, every one of us. What have I ever done to deserve anything good? How could anyone love me? While the world sings about Christmas, I'm just trying to get through today. While the world talks about hope and joy and peace, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, trying, I'm just trying to keep my secrets from getting found out. What have I ever done to deserve love like this? Connor and I have worked it out that we're not going to sing a song to close, but instead I'm, I'm going to in, in invite you to, to listen to a song. There's this, uh, there's this new album by a relatively new artist. I think it came out earlier this year, Lauren Daigle. And in the middle of the album, 
of which every song is great. She has this chorus on one track in particular that what have I done to deserve love like this? And I invite you to spend these couple of minutes as the music plays, just just seated here in the very presence of God who, who reminds us it's not what we have done. Despite what we have done, he loves us anyway. Let's pray.